This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. Um, talking about lamentations and grief, and I just want to start by taking... Uh, a deep breath. And if anyone wants to join in a deep breath, you can close your eyes. Uh, you can hold your neighbor's hand if you want. Um, I'm just going to take a breath. <sighs> okay. I, I want to begin this talk um, by reading something out of a, a book that really turned me on, I guess, to the, to the Book of Lamentations or opened my eyes to it. It's a book called A Liturgy of Grief, A Pastoral Commentary on Lamentations. And it's written by a man who is a Old Testament scholar and a chaplain. And he tells this, this story. He says this. Raymond was brought to the hospital late one evening as a precaution against suicide. He was a fine man in his mid-twenties assisting the youth pastor at his church and dedicated to helping teenagers. Now he needed help. A few months before, his parents had died, one after the other, two bitter blows. Then he learned his girlfriend was dead of an overdose. It was all too much. He was brought by ambulance to this locked psychiatric unit. The next day, a request was made by the staff for a chaplain to visit. When I arrived, I gently woke Raymond out of an exhausted sleep. Bleary-eyed, he sat up in bed and said, All I want to do is sleep. I was glad to hear him demonstrate this safe form of denial. It made me realize his stay would not be an extended one, and so this was likely to be my only visit. I also realized this was not the occasion for a long pastoral interchange. What short message could I leave about the way forward? I thought for a moment and said, I want to leave three words with you, Raymond. Tears, talk, and time. I added a brief sentence to each word and then told him to go back to sleep and remember those three words when he woke up. And God bless you, I added. So tears, talk, and time. Three helpful components, not all that's required to approach grief, but helpful components uh, that happen to all begin with T's uh, that make it memorable uh, that have stuck with me. And they've stuck with me in part because myself and the churches I've been a part of, for the most part, uh, and the broader culture I belong to, struggles to know what to do with grief. Uh, Grief being an experience of deep sorrow connected to loss. Pastor Tim Keller, in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, says this. He says, "Western Western societies are perhaps the worst societies in the history of the world at preparing people for suffering and death. 
I would want to add to that that we are perhaps also at the worst, we are also the worst, or one of the worst, at offering people ways to express and uh, articulate their pain and suffering. Part of this trouble, I think, is the underlying assumptions we bring to the world. We live in an age of, of unprecedented wealth and safety and comfort, and these are great things, but they can implicitly train us to assume they're the norms. We should expect this. We are owed these things, and when they're gone from us, we've been robbed of something. And I, I know when I experience grief, I oscillate between two poles. Um, I can either run from it, bury it, deny it, suck it up, or I wallow in it. I set up camp there. I make it my precious, and I allow it too much space in my own self-understanding and identity. And if this is just like a speculation, but I wonder if that first extreme about burying it, denying it, is something that's characteristic of an older generation, a generation kind of above me, my parents' generation. And I wonder if the other pole of making it a precious and making it a central part of one's identity is characteristic of my generation and younger. And that's just uh, anecdotal. But I think the fact that we see these poles in our culture shows that uh, grief and sorrow and loss are disorienting. And we don't know what to do, and in part we don't know what to do because we don't have shared cultural practices or models of what to do with our grief. And the church has struggled to know what to do with grief. I think arguably... It tends towards the suppression side, the sort of denying side, end of the spectrum. But Tish Harrison Warren, in her really excellent book, yeah, I think it's a great book, um, called Prayer Prayer in the Night, she writes the following thing. Uh, She says this, Buried grief still demands a hearing. If we don't make time for grief, it will not simply disappear. Grief is stubborn. It will make itself heard or we will die trying to silence it. If we don't face it directly, it comes out sideways in ways that aren't recognizable as grief. Explosive anger, uncontrollable anxiety, compulsive shallowness, brooding bitterness, unchecked addiction. Grief is a ghost that can't be put to rest until its purpose has been fulfilled. So part of, I think, what grief's purpose is, is to communicate to us, to let us know the extent of what our loss is, what we have lost, and what it has meant to us. And in a moment where we we lack these things, Robin Perry, who is a theologian who also has written a commentary on um, Lamentations, called Lamentations, um, he writes this, he says, As we increasingly lack the social practices, words, and concepts necessary to grasp our pain by the horns and stare it in the face, we are robbed of a vocabulary of grief, and we suffer all the more for it. The book of Lamentations accosts us by the wayside as a stranger who offers us an unasked for, unwanted, and yet priceless gift, the poetry of pain. We would be wise to pay attention. And that is what I want to do with our time together this evening. Simply pay attention to it. So this is a brief outline of where we are going. I, um, I, this is, this is a watercolor by, um, 
uh, artist named Fritz Fowlow, and um, it looks a lot cooler on my screen than it does up here. I don't, I don't love the, the transfer. But anyway, uh, where we're going to go is I'm just going to talk about Lamentations. I'm going to talk about a particular day in the Jewish liturgical calendar called the Tish Be'av. I'm going to talk about the poetic that's at work in these poems. I'm going to look at a few key moments together and then have some concluding thoughts. So that's where we're going. And simply put, Lamentations, this, this book in our Old Testament, is a collection of five distinct poems. These poems were composed after the fall and near total destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, and most of the inhabitants of, the Jeruz- of Jerusalem were either killed or taken to Babylon, led by King Nebuchadnezzar. The bare bones of the account is found in 2 Kings 24 and 25. And so this is, uh, this is sort of some of what goes on uh, in the fall of Jerusalem. There is a two-year siege on the city. There's a famine. The city walls get breached. There's a desperate attempt to escape the city, which fails. And the king of Israel, Zedekiah, has all of his sons brought before him, and they're killed in front of his eyes. Then his eyes are gouged out, so the last thing he sees are his dead sons. And he, along with any skilled workers, priests, or soldiers, are taken into exile and forced to walk 600 miles to Babylon. The city of Jerusalem is left behind, burnt down. The temple is looted, defiled, and destroyed. People are massacred. We read of rape and cannibalism. And only the poorest of the poor are left to live in the ruins. And so out of these ruins, literally, come these poems. These poems which are, for those left behind, they give words and a vocabulary of grief to bring their experience into expression. It offers a vocabulary of loss and this poetry of pain. These poems are not answers to sort of philosophical or theological questions about the problem of evil. They function differently. They are, in the words of Old Testament scholar and hospital chaplain (coughs) Leslie Allen, a liturgy of grief. And one of the ways this book has lived on, (coughs) um, because if we're honest, we probably don't hear much about Lamentations in our church services, unless you've done a Bible in the year or read it on your own. Probably the only thing you would hear from the book of Lamentations is a line from the third poem that shows up in the chorus of Great is Thy Faithfulness. Um, It's a gorgeous hymn. It's a great hymn. But it sadly doesn't acknowledge the the context of devastation that these poems emerge from. And and many church cultures are just... um, and, and, And church music has sort of mastered a cruel art of avoiding sadness or any other emotion. So one theologian writes this. He says, In the Protestant West today... Smiling has become a moral imperative. The smile is regarded as the objective externalization of a well-ordered life. Sadness is a moral failure. Where evangelical churches theologize happiness and ritualize the smile, sad believers are spiritually ostracized. Sadness is the scarlet letter of the contemporary church, embroidered proof of a person's spiritual failure. Um, And in this sort of superficial climate, (coughs) the unintended casualty is hope. 
If you can't say that life is hard, that things are not good, or that you're deeply sad, why do you need hope? Things are already great. But things are different and perhaps a little more humane in the Jewish liturgical use of these poems. Uh, And they're read at least annually in, I think, a very powerful and memorable way in something called the Tisha Be'av, or the Ninth of Av. Av is a month on the Jewish calendar. This year is going to coincide with August 7th. And it's a sacred day that has some pretty startling restrictions uh, for the observant. They refrain from eating and drinking. There's no washing, no shaving, no wearing of cosmetics or creams. Leather is not to be worn. You're not to have sex. You're not to study the Torah. Work in the ordinary sense is restricted. For the duration of the day, the observants are not to smile, laugh, have idle conversation, or greet their friends in the street. And it is a day on which no one should be married. Uh, Interestingly, there's an intertestamental um, text that talks about the Messiah will actually be born on the 9th of Av, which is just an interesting aside. But the day culminates with the observant gathering in a synagogue where the Ark, which is the cabinet that keeps the Torah, the sacred uh, Old Testament scriptures, is draped in black, the lights go off and are dimmed, and in the darkness, usually sitting on the floor, like you see in the picture here, the observant hear, among other things, the Book of Lamentations read in its brutal entirety. This day of mourning originated as a day to mourn and commemorate two of the most devastating events, For the Jewish people, the loss of the temple, which these poems emerged out of, as well as the destruction of the second temple by the Romans, both events, which are 656 years apart, are said to have happened in the month of Av. Uh, But throughout the years, the reasons for mourning have expanded beyond the loss of the temples to include other catastrophes experienced by the Jewish people. Many are said to have happened in the month of Av. The first crusade happened in the month of Av. Av, It was started on August 15th, 1069. And 10,000 Jews were killed in the first month. Um, The expulsion of Jews from England in 1290, as well as out of France in 1306, in Spain and out of Spain in 1492. And more recently... Uh, SS Commander uh, uh, Heinrich Himmler received formal approval from the Nazi Party for his final solution, which put the Holocaust into death and ultimately led to the uh, put it into into play, and then led to the death of a third of the world's Jewish population. And this has happened also in the month of Av. But as the observant come to listen to these poems and to lament these things that have happened in their past, they don't just <clears throat> they don't just come to hear about some far-off ancient scar. They come also and they bring with them their unhealed open wounds that they carry with them in their own life. Whether that's divorce, death, job loss, strained friendships, a national crisis, a parent suffering from dementia, someone lost to cancer, a lost pet, an unwanted move, It goes on and on and on. Throughout the passing of the years, these poems of pain and sorrow become associated quite deeply with the seemingly measureless grief and suffering that have been experienced by the Jewish people. Each year, their grief, whether old, 
or whether new, I swept up into the words, the tears, and laments of these five poems. These poems are a liturgy for grief, ancient and new. They offer a language of grief and give pain an expression before a God who hears. And so I just also wanted to show this picture. I meant to show it a minute ago. This is a, uh, Mark Chagall, who is a, a, um, a Russian Jewish uh, painter, and this is called uh, White Crucifixion. Jesus is wearing a, it's very Jewish in this presentation. Chagall is also Jewish. But he's also showing uh, here other, other, so it's a very Jewish Jesus. Uh, but it's also depicting other horrors that have happened to the Jewish people, whether uh, they, the ransacking of their homes, the burning of their homes, or the temple being deported. Uh, Chagall is just a, um, a quite, a, quite a, quite a, quite a painter. But moving from the liturgical use in the Tish Abayav, I want to talk about the poetic of this book. How how do these poems sort of do what they do? Because there's something. I think quite interesting about them uh, that is lost in um, lost in translation, and there's no way to get into a poem uh, to get into the beauty of poetry like a chart. Um, so here here is a chart. That is my one joke that I have for the night. I feel like. What is that movie with Robin Dead Poets Society? I'm like the other teacher who's not Robin Williams. Who's like anyway? Um, but each of these um, exciting blue rectangles um, represents each of the poem, and so all of the poems are acrostic. Uh, they all follow well, except the fifth one, uh, and they they have a similar way. So there's there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And in the first two poems in particular, it's, it, it, uh, it's not, A is not the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, but it would be like A, two, three, B, two, three, C. Each, each line, or each verse has three lines, and each letter gets the three lines, so there's 66 lines. That's repeated in the second one. The third one, third chapter, it continues with the 66 line. But it intensifies the acrostic. It goes A, 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 B, 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 C, 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 D, D, D. The fourth uh, changes. It goes, it goes sort of, it, it drops the intensification. Uh, and, but it only has two lines. So it's like A1, B1, C1 going down. And, and the last poem, the fifth poem, uh, has no acrostic uh, to it. It keeps 22 verses with a line each. So it has 22 lines, so it still keeps the same sort of feel, uh, um, same sort of feel as uh, <coughs> the other. So it keeps something that is identifiable, but it breaks that pattern, and we'll, we'll come to that in a little bit. But I, I think this is poetry. This gets lost in translation. Um, it's lost on me because I don't know how to read Hebrew, but I've read other people that read Hebrew that have talked about this. But it's some of the most stylized and masterful poetry in all of scripture. Uh, this has been, it shows evidence of care, of time, attention, of artistry. And I, I do think the third poem and the fifth poem that really break, uh, or different are meant to draw our attention to. But it's worth asking why an acrostic? Why use, uh, this particular form, this particular poetic, to convey something. And 
the sort of the consensus that I read, the best guesses are that this expresses the entirety of something. Think of this as the A to Z of something. Lamentations is a careful and deliberate consideration of every detail of grief. It's not setting parameters around what sort of grief is permissible, like if it's not mentioned in these poems, it's not allowed. Uh, But it's a poetic device which aims to legitimize and take seriously the reality of those who grieve. Eugene Peterson writes that the acrostic form organizes grief, patiently going over the ground step by step, insisting on the significance of each detail of suffering. Nothing is left out, uh, and, and that is important. And again, Tish Harrison Warren has a helpful comment about this. She says again in her book, Prayer in the Night, Certainly there are particular seasons of grief. Grief is in part a response to an acute loss in our life. There are times of mourning, but the way I've come to understand grief has changed. I've come to see grief as part of the everyday experience of being human in a world that is both good and cruel. In this sense, grief is constant for us. It is a real and right response to our vulnerability. Feeling sadness is the cost of being emotionally alive. It's the cost even of holiness. Christians have to let ourselves be people who mourn. It's part of the deal. It's a defining characteristic of those Jesus called blessed. So these poems are a liturgy of grief that offer a vocabulary of loss and suffering that help give expression to the A to Z of grief in a patient, careful, dignifying manner and really a masterful poetic. So whatever your loss is, whatever your grief is, it's welcomed here in the same way that it's welcomed in the reading uh, of this work in the Tisha B'Av. And these poems can offer a language and an array of images to help us articulate our grief, to bring it into expression. And we'll see not just expression out, just to get it out, but also to bring it to God. And just the, 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 the intricacy, the masterfulness, the artistry, the attention that this poetic is giving to sort of the worst of human experience Uh, brought to mind a quote from the musician Tom Waits, who says this. He says, The world is a hellish place, and bad writing is destroying the quality of our suffering. It cheapens and degrades the human experience when it should inspire and elevate. Um, So I'm going to go ahead and jump to considering a couple key points. I'm going to look at the opening uh, three verses or three stanzas and I'm going to jump uh, to chapter 3 and then jump to chapter 5 and we'll spend actually the most time the most time here um, so this is how this is stanza 1 this is how um, Lamentation starts how terrible that the city sits alone once so great in population It is turned into a widow, as it were, once so great compared to the other nations. The first lady of the provinces has turned into a forced laborer. She sobs and sobs in the nighttime. Tears rest on her cheeks. She has no comforter out of all of her former allies. Her friends all have betrayed her, turning her 
uh, turning, betrayed her, turning into her enemies. Judah was exiled after enduring affliction and hard labor. She, not, uh, she, oh, I think I wrote that wrong on there. Uh, she now sits among the other nations. She could know, uh, she could find no resting place. She was constantly caught after being chased into tight corners. So the opening word of the poem, and it's really the, the, it sets the tone for all that's to follow, is in fact not really a word. Uh, when we read it here, we see how, and it's, it's setting up a contrast of a grim present and a better past. It names the chasm that bereavement and grief create. But it's not really a word. It's a cry. It's this Hebrew, and it's a cry of agony. And in fact, the name of this, this, this collection of poems in Hebrew is Echah, which just is a cry of agony. And this sort of cry is captured vividly by a woman named Anne Hood in her book, Comfort, A Journey Through Grief. It's a memoir that she wrote after her daughter's death. She writes this about the scream of grief. She says, it's not the kind of scream that comes from fright, but the kind that comes from the deepest grief imaginable. It is a scream that comes when there aren't words to express what you feel. It is a scream that rails against logic and fate and everything that there is. And this sort of scream is where the Book of Lamentations begin. This biblical poetry of loss uh, starts. Um, and then moving from this, this scream... I just want to kind of highlight a few things as we as we go through, especially this that she sits alone. Alone is a word that will uh, is a reality that happens time and again throughout uh, throughout these poems. And however universal the phenomenon of grief is, one's experience of grief is unique to them. What maybe was a life full of people and joy and friends uh, can no longer be taken for granted anymore. And she's not only alone, she's a widow. And in the ancient world, a once married woman, if she becomes a widow, has no means of first financial support. She's in need of special legal protection because there's no one to care for her now that her husband is dead. This is actually true, I think, today in many parts of the world with widows as well. So it's an image that elicits sympathy from the reader, not scorn or judgment. Jerusalem is presented as a destitute mourner who sits alone in the dust of a once great city. And as you move to the second stanza, I find this one very visual. Uh, there's tears. She sobs and sobs in the nighttime. Tears rest on her cheek. Tears show up time and time again in these poems. And it brings to mind the words of other mourners throughout history. I thought of St. Augustine, who speaks of the morning, uh, he speaks of his own morning at the death of one of his close friends. He says, The tears streamed down, and I let them flow as freely as they would, making of them a pillow for my heart, and on them it rested. Or more recently, a philosopher, Nicholas Walterstorff, who wrote a book of short reflections after the loss of his son. Uh, it, the book is called Lament for a Son. And he says this, I shall look at the world through tears. Perhaps I shall see things that dried-eyed I could not see. And I don't mean to sound trite, but the Bible speaks 
time and again of our tears as being precious to God. God sees our tears and he hears those who weep. Tears are given dignity throughout the scripture. And as moving on a little bit further, there's this word, uh, all, that we see. It's a significant word in this stanza, but it shows up all throughout the poems. You'll hear things like all of her allies, all of her lovers, all of her enemies, all of her people, all who pass by, all of her glory is lost, all of her precious things, on and on and on. Uh, it's a poetic image of entirety, the entirety of something, and it might sound hyperbolic or exaggerated, but it gives credence to the many who experience their grief as all-encompassing, an overwhelming sadness that refuses to say stay sort of sealed in socially acceptable corners of life, one's private life usually, but grief spills over completely and occupies someone's entire horizon. That Lady Zion in her grief has no comforter is also a refrain that is spoken again and again throughout these poems. One commentator calls this refrain of having no comforter the somber drumbeat of this collection. It accentuates the experience of isolation and grief. And I I think this is true for mourners today, maybe even more so for mourners in the ancient world where it was custom to be surrounded by your closest people uh, who would give presence and solidarity and comfort. But that's not what's happening here. Lady Zion is totally alone. Now the third stanza... um, is in some ways difficult, but it's full of Old Testament allusions, actually. And throughout um, throughout Lamentations, these poems aren't just, I think, crafted in a form that's that's quite masterful. But they're they're reusing biblical language all over the place in very evocative ways. And I just want to point out at least one of them. So these words, affliction and hard labor, that show up here. Judah was exiled after enduring affliction and hard labor. These are not common words in the Old Testament. Tellingly, the only other place where they show up together and with any regularity is the book of Exodus. These coupled words are used to describe Israel's 400 years of enslavement in Egypt. And here the same words describe the condition of Lady Zion during the siege which leads to the exile. It's a subtle, but I think for attentive readers... It's a, it's a way of saying that the exile is the undoing of the exodus. The exodus, God's great paradigmatic act of deliverance, bringing his people out of slavery in Egypt. It's been reversed. It's been turned upside down. It would be like on Easter morning, the, 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 the pastor or priest saying, actually, Jesus has gotten back in the tomb and there's no hope. Um, Jesus' body is decomposing. So everything has been undone. So there's a, a rawness, there's an intensity uh, to these poems. There's, there's an unabashedness and uh, a, a strong, strong reuse of biblical language. Um, and there's, there's not enough time to keep going through all of it. So I'm going to jump actually to the third, third poem. I'm going to put this painting back up here. I'm telling you, it looks way better, way nicer on my screen. But in the third poem, we hear the voice of someone who is called the man who is who has seen affliction. Someone who has suffered alongside his people. Uh, he's assumed to have been the voice or the reporter in the first couple poems. But now he speaks for himself. These are his words. 
And this poem, uh, again, it intensifies the, the acrostic. Uh, and it, it, it's sort of like his testimony. And it turns, uh, it turns into something of a sermon as well. This man who has seen affliction, he also speaks in a really uh, um, evocative way. He reuses a lot of biblical allusions. He um, is, is referencing language from Psalms and Job and Isaiah. So he re-employs biblical language to describe his own experience of grief. And I'm just going to read some of it uh, to you. I'm going to read the first 18 verses. Uh, I'm not going to comment too much on it either. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven me and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He's made me desolate. He bent his bow and sent as a target and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove in my kidneys the arrow of his quiver. I became the laughingstock of all people, the object of all their taunts all day long. He's filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. So it's pretty, it's pretty brutal. It's, it's pretty, um, it's not the sort of thing you would expect to hear in a religious text, I think. Um, but in some ways, what he's talking about, I think his pain, we can think about this in a way, because he's going to move on to say more. He doesn't stop there. These are sort of like his counseling credentials. He has lived through unimaginable horrors, and as just as the rest of the community. But he has something to share with them. He goes on. Uh, and there is a, specific, a, a pretty significant change in tone uh, that we'll see. After he lets out all of, of, of what he just said, So this is now in verse 19. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear this yoke in his youth. Then um, he keeps he keeps going. He doesn't stay 
um, he actually sort of returns more to the tenor of the, the, the initial verses. But there is this really significant change. Leslie Allen, um, the, the, there's a spark of hope. He pauses. And he's thankful that he's alive. That God's mercies are new in the morning and that he's still there. Leslie Allen shares a story about visiting uh, a, a critical care unit to visit a premature baby, this little boy named John, who was struggling for life and was most likely not going to make it. And John's parents asked him to come and just pray aloud over John every morning. And so he would go and pray, but he never was able to find John's nurse to ask how he was progressing until the day that he does. And he sees John's nurse there, and he goes and he asks her about the progress. And at first she doesn't respond, and she breathes heavy, and she simply replies to him, where there is life, there is hope. This is the same sort of precarious and vulnerable place the man who has seen affliction is at this point in Lamentations. He says this about himself. God woke me up this morning, so there's new mercy for me. Where there is life, there is hope. And so amid my suffering, as long as I have life, I can justify some smidgen of hope in God. His situation is largely unchanged, and it hasn't been downplayed at all. Uh, he has exercised what Viktor Frankl called the last of human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. It's what John Claypool realized after the death of his 10-year-old daughter, Laura. She died to leukemia. He said this, he said, There are times when the help God offers us is to endure what cannot be changed, to allow the change to take place within us in our attitude rather than in the outward circumstances we face, somehow being able to take each day as the gift that it is, aware that sometimes the only form grace takes is the grace simply to hang in there and to not give up. Now, there's a lot more, again, to say about the third poem, but I want to move to the final poem. And I've lost my... Oh, it's returned. This is the fifth poem. This is the concluding poem. It's the shortest poem in the collection, and it's the only poem that is a prayer. Uh, It's a prayer of lament. It's naming to bringing to God the things that seem contradictory about his goodness and our reality. Uh, and if you, again, if you remember the acrostic pattern um, chart that we showed before, um, the acrostic pattern is broken in this poem. The sense of ordered movement is dropped too. The 22 lines remain, but the pattern is gone. And in a way, this poem, I think, realizes the goal which the other poems have been slowly... Uh, edging and moving towards, especially the third poem with the man who knows affliction. And the goal is simply this, to name our hurts, our pain and our suffering to God. The goal is prayer, reaching out to God from our places of pain. Perhaps we could speculate that dropping uh, the acrostic pattern signals something of a crack in the totality of grief that has characterized the previous poems. Perhaps there is a cautious and tentative possibility of hope in prayer. And it's important because one, one, I let one scholar put it well. He says that um, 
In Lamentations, uh, the heavens are silent. God's voice, God doesn't speak in Lamentations at all. But just because the heavens are silent doesn't mean the heavens are deaf or are blind. And so this is, this is what it moves towards. Alright, Lamentations 5. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We've become orphans, fatherless, our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink, the wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks, we are weary, we are given no rest. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more. And we bear their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion. Young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill. The boys stagger under loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate. The young men their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion lies desolate. Jackals prowl over it. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. Unless you have utterly rejected us, and you remain exceedingly angry with us. So that's where the prayer ends. Uh, the poems, the prayer doesn't end with the closure we might hope for. In fact, it, it ends with a question. And if complete spiritual, psychological closure are possibilities, um, for those who are experiencing grief, it happens outside of the scope of these poems. Uh, this poem's goal is much less lofty and perhaps much less satisfying than closure. Uh, but it's, it's more daring. It's making contact with God from our place of grief. And the book closes with a profound sense of ambiguity. It resists simple, neat, and tidy answers. Hope is on the horizon because this is all brought to God and God is named. But it's not yet realized. There might be a getting over. There might not be a getting over, but there is a moving on. And it's a difficult place to end. In fact, the Tish Abbeav... Uh, celebration, it actually repeats verse 21 again after reading verse 22, because it ends on such a dour note. It ends on such a down note. So they would end it by saying, Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days of as old. Unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. And it's, I mean, it's an interesting move, and um, it ends on a slightly more hopeful note. 
But it, it misses a, a little bit of something. It, it, it misses um, something of the poems. Alan writes, It's important to grasp that the complaint tradition that's used in the climax of this final poem, uh, which is part of all the lament songs, bringing our, our complaints, our frustrations, the incongruities of God's character and our experience of life. He writes, It's important to grasp that the complaint tradition used in the climax of this poem is born of extremity and desperation. When believers find themselves in such a fearful valley, the biblical tradition is there, providing challenging words uh, for us to use in our places of pain. So that's where Lamentation ends. Um, There's much more to say about Lamentations. But I want to end with a couple concluding thoughts. Um, uh, this, This liturgy of grief has brought us to the possibility of reaching out to God from our place of pain without in any way downplaying uh, our, our pain. And I don't know what sort of pain, what sort of grief, what sadness you carry with you. I know some of your stories, but I still don't know all of what that is. I have a strong inclination that it comes from a, a different context than um, the poems of Lamentations emerged from. Uh, but the question remains of what do we do with our pain? What do we do with our grief? What do we do with our hurt? And I want to conclude by putting Alan's three T's, tears, talk, and time, in conversation um, or in connection with a book that I read recently that has been, in the last few months, that has been very helpful for me, uh, a book called Healing Emotional Wounds by David Benner. Um, And he speaks about a context in which Emotional healing can happen where we move through our grief. And he describes this context of emotional healing as having many components, but at least three. Re-experiencing the pain, which is a connection with our emotions. Reinterpreting the hurt, connecting with our minds. And releasing anger, which is connecting with our wills. Uh, And working through grief is, is a whole person thing. And however tidy any of this looks... Um, or maybe seems these are complicated matters that happen over long periods of time and not in any sort of uh, linear fashion. And it's worth saying, too, that Benner's work is, is a specific kind of grief, the kind of grief that happens when someone has done something to you, when someone has wronged you, uh, which is slightly different than what we say, what we see in the book of Lamentations. And while there's not complete correspondence, I think there's some overlap. And I found placing them besides one another somewhat insightful. Um, And time doesn't allow us to go into adequate detail for all of these things. But I want to talk about them together. Tears with re-experiencing the pain. Talk with reinterpreting the pain. And time with releasing the anger. So we've heard some of the tears from these poems. She sobs and sobs. Later, we would read, Water streams from my eyes. I'm crying my eyes out. Let your tears run down like a torrent. Day and night, streams of water run down my eyes. It goes on and on. There's lots of tears here. And tears flow in order to let sadness do its work in part. Now, when Benner speaks about re-experiencing the pain, he is speaking about the emotional work of facing the pain so many of us work so hard to avoid. 
The core emotional task here is mourning. This is what he's talking about with re-experiencing the pain. Mourning. The overlap with tears. Benner writes that like the formation of a scab on an open wound, mourning serves to start the process of repairing psychological damage produced by the experience of hurt. Thus, mourning is both healthy and necessary. In the absence of mourning, emotional healing is impossible. Mourning can be thought of as a way in which we actively work towards the repair of emotional damage done by hurt. We've seen this over and over again in these poems, the poems of Lamentations. They, they understand mourning very, very well. The second component of talk connects with reinterpreting uh, the pain. Talk is obviously the most, well, it's the most obvious feature of these poems. They're just, oh, there's a lot of talking. Alan writes, the purpose of talking is to articulate grief, to face up to the haunting memories with the defining clarity of speech. It makes me think of Shakespeare's Macbeth, what he tells the grieved Mac, uh, I my autocorrect changed it to McMuffin, but I think it's McDuff. It's McDuff, isn't it? It's McDuff. Um, I swear, I, that is not, that was not, um. I know, I didn't even plan another joke. I, as I got to it, I was like, wait, it can't be McMuffin. Larry. Alright. But Shakespeare's Macbeth tells the grief, McDuff, give sorrow words. The grief that does not speak whispers the overfraught heart and bids it break. One grief counselor says that every time we speak our grief, it's like we let a little more of the poison out of our system. Now, when Benner speaks of reinterpreting the hurt here, he's speaking about a different, a particular type of talking. He's about, and it's about connecting with our minds. Uh, and, and he encourages this sort of talking to happen with a trusted and honest friend, a counselor, a pastor, someone who understands uh, working with people. Because the process that he's after here with this reinterpreting the hurt is ensuring that our recall of the events of the hurtful transactions are as accurate as possible. And this is important because our memory gets processed through our hurt emotions and our memory can easily be shaped to fit our hurt emotions. And the goal of this sort of talk for Brenner is not just to get our emotions out there. It's not just to make sure we have all the details right. He has a particular goal in mind that you need to do those other first to get here. His goal is ultimately to see the other person who has wronged me as like me. He writes, one important part of this new perception is seeing that those who hurt me more likely than not did so while coping with personal hurts, needs, and feelings of inadequacy. This does not excuse people for what they did. In fact, it is precisely because what they did is inexcusable that forgiveness is necessary. He says this allows us to identify with the one who hurt us. And there's lots of guided talk that needs to happen here. Lots of hard questions. Lots of honest self-appraisal before we could get to this sort of place. But Benner writes, this takes real courage and it can be unusually productive. The reward for such self-examination is the ability to identify with those who hurt us. Such identification breaks down 
the artificial compartmentalization of the world into villains and victims. The reality is that we are all both villains and victims, and consequently, none of us are simply one or the other. So Benner is insistent that this is very hard work. Uh, and it is, if it is too hard work, he does not want to add extra guilt or shame, uh, but that this takes a tremendous amount of courage and usually takes time. Time is the last thing, uh, from Alan's three T's. No matter how lovely it would be if it did, time does not heal all wounds. A wound only heals over time with proper tending. In a similar way, time creates room for the processing of grief. There is no set amount of time for all the various griefs we can face. Grief moves at its own pace, and it doesn't always move in a linear fashion. Um, And each grief has its own timetable. I meant to say right before saying time, I feel like there's a real connection between tears, re-experiencing the pain, talk, reinterpreting. This time in releasing the anger might have a little bit more of a stretch, but bear with me. Um, the third component of his of Benner's uh, context for emotional healing is the release of anger, something that is uh, not a one-and-done process. It is a commitment that happens over time to walk in forgiveness, <coughs> Continual decision made over and over to continue to forgive. Better names a number of understandable reasons why we might possibly withhold forgiveness. Our right to hold a grudge. We don't want to give up our power. We feel morally superior. We think it lets them off the hook. They might not even want our forgiveness. And finally, because it makes us feel so vulnerable all over again. To these, Benner has a pretty strong warning that unforgiveness is quite dangerous and that a life of chronic bitterness and hatred will eat away at our bodies, our souls, and our minds. Now, I've already spoken for a while, but I just want to say a few words on what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not simply forgetting what happened. That's called repression. Uh, forgiveness is not excusing it, because um, if it was excusable, we wouldn't have to forgive it. Um, and we're not looking to just rationalize things away. It's not to ignore it. We need to name the wrongs that have been done to us, uh, the injustice. And it is not an extension of trust uh, uh, to the person who has wronged us. We, don't, uh, we must not assume that they will never hurt us again. There is a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. But at its heart, forgiveness is letting go of malice, of the right to retaliate, of the right to hang on to the emotional consequences of hurt, the grief that we carry with us. Now, I just, in closing, I, I want to remind us of Tish Harrison Warren's comment, or that I, a quote that I used earlier, that grief is a ghost that can't be put to rest unless its work is done. And part of what uh, a a friend of mine texted me today, a former student actually here, uh, sent me this this quote from a book that I'd never heard of before called Dark Cloud... um, Dark Cloud... I didn't write the full name down. I just wrote Dark Cloud Deep. But uh, it's by Mark uh, Vrogup. But this I thought was a great way uh, to close. He says this, uh, The rehearsing of pain has a purpose. 
The full throttle cataloging of pain sets the context for the call of God, or for the call uh, for God to remember. However, it has been my experience that many Christians are uncomfortable with the tension of the long rehearsing of pain combined with the appeal to God's grace. We tend to hush the recitation of sorrow. However, restoration doesn't come to those who live in denial. I wonder what would happen if more Christians confidently walked into the darkest moments of life and guided people in talking to God about their pain. So that's where I'm going to stop. You, you are welcome to go get another cookie. You're welcome to have any comments or questions. Um, but yeah, we can stay and talk for as long as you would like. I'm going to put it back on this painting. Could you tell me your name? I'm sorry, I don't know your name. Would you? My name's Martha. Martha. Hi, Martha. Can you say that all one more time? Have you ever read the book Healing for Damaged Emotions by David Stevens? No, I don't know it, yeah. Oh, so David Stevens is a pastor in Asbury where I went to college. Yeah. He wrote this book called Healing for Damaged Emotions and it really helped me tremendously. Mm hmm. Thank you, Martha. Yeah. Can you tell me the name of that book again? It's called Healing for Damaged Emotions by David Stevens. And I think uh, it was written, he wrote it originally a long time ago, and then it was rewritten with a woman, and he made it into a study guide. I've actually taught it a few times at church, and it's really helped me tremendously, and I know it's helped a lot of other people as well. Yeah.
Yeah, I'm curious if anyone has any thoughts on that or experiences. Is it just uncomfortable? Or yeah, Ben? I just wonder why there's maybe lots of reasons, but one, one that I can think of is that it's, it, it seems like a failure of gratitude. It's like there's so much to be thankful for. The appropriate response to, to being a Christian is to be full of joy. What are you doing? But get over it. You know, Thank you for both of those. I also think sometimes churches are um, <laughs> like competing with TV and Netflix and social media for people's attention. And if we can give them the best experience, they'll keep coming. I feel like that's the anxiety I feel like underneath a lot of church services. And um, yeah, so they just want to give people a great experience so they'll keep coming back and um, yeah I, I, so I, I think sometimes that just falls then in always like a really positive a positive tone a good experience something that's uplifting um, uh, but yeah I just sometimes wonder if it comes from a place of anxiety in the church wanting to keep people coming and trying to compete with the endless other things people could be doing on a Sunday morning. Um, yeah. Did you ever hand up Lisa? Yeah, I was just thinking, <clears throat> time, too. We live in such a busy, busy, and 
so for someone to look at you and share that um, they've got something heavy, um, then it's dema- it demands time. Yeah. And if somebody just says, I'm fine, then you can keep going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You mentioned that in the Western culture, you're not really trained how to deal with that as well. Mm-hmm. The book called Peripheral Hitching Podcasts, and I'm terrible at the purpose of It really talks about that in comparing three different societies, and I think you really hit on something. Mm-hmm. You've got a lot of big things, but that is such a huge issue. Mm-hmm. The beautiful part of Christ is that of all the religions in the world, when you look at them, he has the most comforting, beautiful, we have us of beauty and the world. Mm-hmm. You know, so that, that, that's amazing, but I, I, I've fallen into that. You know, always be happy, always smile, you know, that kind of thing. And I, I really think you, you hit on that. I've wondered if it back, I don't know, but I've wondered if it back to you. That's good. I think I think to, I I also think like I don't like I um we changed churches in the pandemic and I um I in some ways loved it because I could wear my mask and no one would talk to me. Um, and, uh, cause they like wanted to see people they already knew, um, you know, who they can't see as, as regularly, you know, and, and, um, to me, that was a, an, unex- I'm not sure I was in the healthiest place or that's the best way to approach things, but like, I don't want to be vulnerable with people most of the time. I think that's also... I know, I just, I so I feel like I said, like, oh, the churches are trying to give you what the church, but I was like, well, if I'm honest, I, you know, after what you were saying, I was like, I don't want to give strangers time. Like, I don't, and I don't want to share my heart with, with people. So it's like a two-way thing. I'm just speaking for myself. Maybe other people have a different desire in church, but I, yeah, I don't, I don't always want to go there. I, this is something I want to change in myself. Um, this is not a place to, for me to reside. But, um, you know. I just kind of wanted to follow that thought. I mean, it, it makes sense that that is a response where there's been wounding with people. Yeah, and yeah. And trusting people. And, like, how, to, you know, that's a, a vicious cycle. I've been hurt by people when I've been vulnerable, so I'm not going to be vulnerable. I need to stay hurt by people. And like, how how do you break that cycle? Yeah. Are you? Do you want me to answer? Or I didn't know if that was like a rhetorical. I'm asking. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, some of it. Yeah, so yeah, 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 yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I think I, I, I don't. I mean, at the same time, I know I just said I don't like being vulnerable. Um, 
I don't want to be vulnerable, but I do also want to be known and I want to know people. And, um, also not everyone at church, but there are a number of people at church that like something about their life compels me. I'm like, I would like to. And so I think over time as trust is built, you realize some people you can take, take the risk with, I, I, I think, but I, um, I think it's a great, it's a great question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just in response to that, the fact is that one of the things you said in reinterpreting should be accurate, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That the fact is we are incredibly vulnerable. Extremely vulnerable. So it's really a lie to think that we're not. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It eventually shows, yeah, yeah, exactly. It shows up. Yeah. and growing up in India and Pakistan, they have a very different way than the all here. Yeah. So if, if someone has died in your family, then they come to souls, which means to, to grieve with you. And it's very intentional. Like, here when my dad died, then everybody kind of avoids you. Yeah. Anyway, over there, they come and they sit and they ask about the person, how they died, how, you know, what you remember, the things you remember, they will share the things they remember, and you'll talk about it. Yeah. And, and, uh, and you'll just sit there quiet also. Yeah. Just sit there quiet. Um, so I think it's a way more healthy way, actually. And um, just last week, we were with friends in California, a, good, a long-time friend, but I don't see him very often, but his wife died since I last saw him. And uh, so we're sitting there, we're all having a nice conversation like Americans do, and uh, and I'm not I'm not quite remembering how long ago she died, and I'm thinking, you know, how do I bring it up, or what should I say? I feel like I should say something. And so um, his daughter is there, his granddaughter. Yeah, it's our age now. And so... Um, I, I said to him, your daughter just so reminds me of when I first met you guys. Mm-hmm. You were at that same stage, actually. She looks just like her. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he started talking, and, and at the end he said, thank you so much, because mm-hmm. so many people don't want to say anything about it. Mm-hmm. And he said, that's kind of right. You know, do you, why, why do you think, as someone who's lived in both cultures, why are why are we... Why are we weird in that way? Like, what do you think it is about Western people? I'm just curious. Is it... Yeah. I think it's kind of an American thing to be positive. Yeah. And, and also, um, the feel-good thing, like, you shouldn't, you shouldn't reverse it. You shouldn't make someone feel bad, right? So yeah. You should just talk about happy things. Yeah. Um, but it, it made, and this was... This, this was difficult for my mom, who was also a missionary overseas all the years. When my dad died, that her friends kind of avoided her. Because they don't know how to, I mean, it's really sad, right? Death is sad, death is mm-hmm. um, But, uh, so they also didn't want to be sad with her. Hey. But we all have to face death. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so uh, let's do it together rather than alone. Hmm. I, think, I don't know why it's this 
story, but like in my own experience of of trying when when peers have lost a family member and and days that we've been through, you know, losing our own parents, um, I feel like you should have this really profound thing to say to them. And all I do is just fumble of what mm. to say, and I'm just like, and you just end up saying, you know, I'm sorry, and you're like using sorry as a blanket statement. So it's like, I'm sorry I don't have anything good to say. I'm sorry that you lost your parents mm. or your, your mom, whatever. And mm. you're still trying to think of something like, it, at least I feel like you're trying to say something, you just don't know what to say. Yeah. And it's like, it's so awkward that you... We all mm-hmm. it's the same thing we want. It makes us vulnerable too, is yeah. when we, you know, when we're trying to relate some, mm-hmm. to somebody yeah. on that way. But in my own personal experience, when I lost my parents, I remember the next day after finding that out, if I got a text, I called whoever that was back, and I would mm-hmm. say easily eight hours that entire day of calling people just yeah. to tell them, like, yeah, because everyone, because again, it's like you're saying, everyone was that it, it was. They just want to make sure you're okay. It was from a distance. And it was like, no, like, I want to, I want to talk. I want to hear, you know, you know, I want to hear what you have to say about my dad or my mom. I want to hear those stories, like, or I just want to hear you say whatever it is. And it was almost like I was craving to talk to somebody to hear what they were going to say. Because I mean, the thing was, they weren't going to say, like, you know, I think once you got them and they knew that it was okay to say something, for some reason in our culture, we we got to give somebody a pass to be able to say something to us and talk to them, you know. And I think it is because we're so guarded. Um, but I can just remember people like wanting to tell me about you know something my dad did one time at a studio, or the way that like my mom had you know shared a recipe with them or something mm-hmm. like that. And I just and I just wanted to tell them what I knew, what had happened, yeah. so they knew. Um, and like it, it's so weird because like that felt like it was life giving in, in the absolute worst moments yeah. um, to be able to kind of do that. But again, I don't have a good reason as to why culturally we're so resistant to talk about the blaring reality that's staring in the face. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Yeah, Sarah. Did you say that a little louder? I was not allowed to talk about anything negative. I was not allowed. Oh, uh, yeah. I was not allowed to have anything. Not allowed to cry? Or, no, uh, in no. my room. Yeah, okay. Go away. You can cry by yourself. But I think the thing that um, I, you asked what happened, the you have the elements here that are missing in our society that I, the group you were mentioning other places um, and I don't know if this is, this is again a question but like what I'm wondering is um, like I wanted to hear from people who had memories you know like with um, like with like if you lost someone like you know and I know that I mean I, I know like America or just like modern like now it's like um like the people that I see every day and live with, um, I've, where I've lived for nine years, and none of those people grew up with me. Um, mm-hmm. Like we, we kind of like go to different places, maybe more than like. And I'm not saying anything's wrong with that, or, or yeah, I don't yeah. know, you know. But like, I do think 
historically there were uh, like when, when he was talking about like people that called a lot of those people don't live near us now but were far away and grew up with us and so you know like my friends now can't sit and talk about like a certain memory of, you know because they don't yeah. have it and so sometimes I wonder if maybe like cultures where you do stay in the same place and your friends that you have now grew up with you with yeah. your parents and remember that time this or whatever like may help with just the words to say because I think it's hard for like a friend you have currently who doesn't know the person to to sit around and joke about like the time with them that didn't exist you know and so yeah, I just yeah, wonder yeah. if that also makes it hard because we okay. um, we move here there and, and kind of like spread around and, and I'm again like I'm not saying that there's like a problem with that but it does make it hard to have like shared memories yeah. with people and things like that. So yeah. um, yeah. it makes the people that you're currently with, maybe it's not know how to speak into a particular situation. Yeah. 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 There's also just the comfort of being with somebody and not saying anything. Like, I think that's another problem. But you think you need to say something, but I remember talking to um, somebody who's brother died and she mentioned these friends that came over every day to be with her mother and um, sometimes they just sat, sometimes they played cards, sometimes they talked about it, but it was not like they always you know, and it's just like not being alone that that people have talked about don't yeah. you know. Yeah, uh, Esther? Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of thinking on all the things like Shannon was saying, like it's sort of a feature of, of modern life that we are uprooted in so many ways and don't have those connections. I think, too, in Western, in Western culture, we have a very strong sense of privacy um, in, in some ways that, that just aren't the same in other places. And um, this, this one book that I love is. Um, this man makes a friend, it's a, it's a novel, he makes a friend with this person he never thought he would make a friend with, and he realized, has this epiphany that, like, you know, just because someone's alone, we shouldn't, we shouldn't assume that they want to be alone, we should find out before we leave them alone. Um, and I think, like, even just that question, right, like, kind of what Lisa was saying, like, would you say, like, hey, would you like someone to come stay with you? You know, I don't have anything to say, but... It, like, what if we were just that transparent and saying, like, would it help you if someone was in the house with you? You know, would it help you? Like, can I come be with you? Um, or come with me, let's go for a walk, let's go to the store, like, whatever it is, like, to be with. Mm-hmm. I think so often we assume, like, oh, they're off by themselves, they must want to be alone. Or maybe what they're, they're like, over there saying, like, man, I just don't have any strength to go find somebody. Just again, these comments are so seem so real and true to me. Like I, all, all of these seem like really good re- reasons that I can identify with. Like, mm, yeah, I bet that's it too. You know, like, which is why grieving is such a lonely thing. Um, I'm, I'm just. I just wonder what you think about the 
kind of underlying fear of death, and in the West, maybe the particular thing about the happy, happy Americans is that we really, really, really like to pretend death isn't going to happen. <laughs> and in, in comfortable, more affluent areas of this country, we kind of get away with thinking that for a while. Uh, and we're near as exposed to daily death as, as many people are in other parts of the world. You just can't deny it, you just think there's no way they could pretend it didn't exist. Um, but maybe that's one of the reasons why we're so awkward in talking about it, or awkward in, in even acknowledging that something has happened in the life of a friend. Mm. We just do not, we, we studiously avoid practice. You know, no. we avoid, we may watch hours and hours of Netflix and wish there's death on the screen, all that, but, but we're completely mm. incapable of talking about a real death in real life. Um, and we don't really want to get better at it because it makes us think of our own deaths. <laughs> we, we, yeah. The more we engage with someone about, about what they're grieving, we have to, you know, you can't really do that without some um, awareness of your own mortality growing, like, mm. you know, growing. Um, sort of that's just like part of it, specifically, like, yeah. you know, yeah. basic denial. Yeah. yeah. Did you have your hand up, Martha? Or? I was going to say about pain. You asked about pain and you were talking about people being afraid of death. I think it's even, we just don't want to face our own pain. That's yeah. the part of mine. Because when I talk to you about your pain, I was like, now i got to deal with my pain. And I'd rather just not deal with my pain. You know, I'd rather just, like, deny it. And when you don't, and, it, and that's no fun. It's so painful to deal with losses in your life, your grief, whatever it is, your children didn't come out the way you expected or your brother betrayed you, whatever it is, we all carry deep pain if we're going to be honest. And we don't want to face that pain because it, it's hurts. It makes so painful. Mm. You know, so to me, that's my life experience that I've learned is People don't want to face their pain. People in the church sometimes that I've talked to, they look at me like, I'm nuts. I, I really actually know I'm not nuts. But, you know, I'm just like being truthful about my pain. And and, and it's because they don't want to face their pain. And, and, and the only way I know that I can survive is to keep asking God to help me to forgive those people who cause me pain. Mm-hmm. And you know, just to heal me in other ways of, of loss that I've had in my life. You know, what I mean, that's the only way that I can move forward. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm really thankful to God for that. Yeah. Yeah. It's just as we talked about the, the loneliness that is a hallmark of our culture. I just can't help but go back to the fact that you said alone was such a prevalent word through lamentations as well. And I just wonder if, I mean, part of what's so painful is there is a paradox of even in, even in community or even if we have witnesses, people present to us, they can't grieve our griefs for us and they can't walk through our pain, like that is still, we're still alone uh, in that. Um, and yet, 
uses this line a fair bit. She says, um, the gift we give others is our transforming self. Uh, as opposed, like We often think we have to have all of our stuff together. Everything worked out. Uh, so we don't really then need to be vulnerable. right? But the, the transforming self is the self in process. Who's, and like when people sense that in someone else, an, an, an openness, I think they then they they perceive it and then think this is a safe context to say something like my son just tried to take his life so there's something about your own vulnerability that is just part of who you are that made a like a pretty sacred moment right there for that guy um so yeah anybody else have anything they want to Put out or that's just a random like, yeah yeah yeah. Uh, if you think in the, in the book of Lamentations, or the people of Israel in that moment, out of which Lamentations comes, is God calling them to forgive the Babylonians? Hmm. That, that was one of the the, um, the the kind of discontinuities between like the book of Lamentations and then the, and then your insights about some individual yeah, yeah, yeah. grief that's the result of someone hurting you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there seems to be such a consciousness of 
yes, God has rejected us, but it's also we sinned. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's in the context of judgment. You know, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. doesn't make the, the, the affliction easier, but it's said in a context. It's like our ancestors sin against God. And, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm just wondering what, what the what the connection is there. Um, we talk here so much about not interpreting personal tragedy as judgment from God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> resisting that, um, which is sort of a, a knee-jerk reaction we have. So yeah, like, yeah. What does God have against me here? Why is he using mm-hmm. this target practice? Yeah. Um, I'm not really sure what my question is exactly. Yeah. I'm just wondering... Well, I'm not either. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, yeah, I wouldn't say as much in Lamentations about that. I think it's more asking, it's, it's repentance. It's coming to see themselves, you know, like, this doesn't just come after, like, a crazy weekend where they, like, got drunk and spray painted on the, like, walls or something. Like, um, this is, like, after 500 years of idolatry. And call and call to return, to return, to change. So it's, there's, I mean, it's more of, I, I think it's hard to sort of even take the, an individual's experience and then the collective people of, of, uh, of Israel and the, yeah, in particular, those in Jerusalem as, um, they're just sort of not, it's not the same histories. I think that, that, uh, they feed into them, and yeah, I think the the they I think yeah they would be um, to see themselves as as like this this judgment is something we have kind of brought brought into our own lives, um, and um, yeah, I had a section on judgment, but I just decided in the moment to skip it because um, I felt like, but I mean. Um, yeah, I, I, cause I think Lamentations is very much not an attempt to explain, yeah. not even just good and evil and God's presence and it's, it's much more, it's, it's poem, it's, it's poems that are giving a vocabulary to describe, to describe grief, to describe pain. Um, but I think throughout the Old Testament, like God's judgment always presupposes God's prior care. Like I think sometimes we think judgment the opposite of judgment is love, but I think the opposite of judgment is like apathy. Um, and so, because God cares, because God has called these people to live a way that blesses them and blesses the nations, that's a way of human flourishing. When they move away from that, it's it's like self-destructive and ultimately destructive to those, you know, they're called to bless and. I think his judgment is an intervention into that because he cares. He's calling them, calling them back. And judgment is always like, it's never like, I mean, it's sort of like, it is coming. It is coming. Like, it, there's, it's not that it's without warning or foresight or the opportunity to, to change. Um, it's not sort of sporadic and it's after, this is after a long history of, Repeated neglect of God and uh, turning away. So. But in the sense that the, the raw experience of suffering is totally transferable. I mean, I guess it's yeah. the context which is different yeah. than you know the yeah. maybe the 
they answered the question, what is God doing? What is God up to in this? Yeah. You know, it's, it's, but, it's, I think... But, but yeah. you're right. It's like the meditation gives us this... Yeah, like if I was inspiring, if I was a divine being inspiring a, a holy text, I would then have had the poems be just like, we stink, we're the worst, he's the best, he was right from the beginning. But instead, it's like, it, there's like, if we do think this is an inspired text, it shows a profound humility that God is willing to be accused, poem after poem after poem, and um, sort of dragged through the mud. Um, and yeah, that it is a part of part of the life of faith that often feels incoherent. But God, I don't know that God allows it. I, I that inspires it, you know. Um, but yeah. Oh, Connor. I think just to touch quickly, I kept hearing the question: Why? Before, like, why? Why is America like this? Why is it so afraid of death? I think it definitely boils down to how obsessed we are with ourselves and like how the focus is like American me comes with a capital M every mm-hmm. single time. Like if you're doing anything, the first thing that comes is Z, how is this going to affect me? How am I going to feel from this? What am I going to get from this? So as soon as somebody else is thrown into your field of vision and they're going through something, they lost somebody, it is. Because you're like, wait a second, hold on, there's another person here feeling just what I'm feeling, mm-hmm. going through, you know, something maybe that I haven't gone through, but they're, they have the same emotions, they have the same drives as I do. But we just don't know how to get out of that, like, headspace of, of me. And we're saying, I'm the most important thing. And I know this, I'm not saying that the majority of people are just, like, totally selfish, but I think just baseline, where we are, how we're raised, the focus is self. And that does make it to consider how we all of a sudden have to be wrong. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Mm-hmm. All right, well, I'm going to want to read this very short prayer um, out of this book called Little Prayers for Ordinary Days. It's by Katie Bowser Hudson, Flo Paris Oaks, and my hero Tish Harrison Warren. And um, it's a little book of prayers for children. Um, for mealtime, when I have to eat something that I don't like. Like when I see a bird, that is an excellent prayer. Uh, for petting an animal. There's all these just prayers. But one of the prayers... Um, in here is called for when I have lost something and again I think grief is about our response to things we have lost Um, and anyway I'm just going to end with this Uh, dear God I have lost something I really want to find it I feel frustrated and upset will you help me find what I've lost thank you that you love me so much that you always, 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 always come after me to find me. All right, thanks for coming out tonight.